0: I'm Dr. Celine Gounder.
1: And I'm Ron Klain.
0: And this is Epidemic. Today is Tuesday, March 24th. We've got a special episode for you today. Later, you're going to hear from Adam Grant, one of the world's leading experts on how to motivate people, discussing how we get people to do the right thing and how we keep them from doing the wrong ones.
1: We normally take your questions, and we'll be back with that feature on Friday, but today we have a very special episode of the podcast with a unique insight on what's happening right now with the coronavirus pandemic in our hospitals. My co-host, Dr. Celine Gounder, spent a day in a major hospital in New York City on Sunday, March 22nd, treating critically ill patients with the COVID-19 disease. Are cases of COVID really dominating, taking over the hospital setting? I have to say it's
0: really weird to be at Bellevue right now. On the one hand, it feels like a ghost town. Basically, the hospital has cleared out, largely devoting itself to coronavirus patients. It's really eerily quiet, except for overhead pages every hour or so for patients who are getting worse and need to be transferred to the ICU and put on a ventilator. On the one hand, yes, we're dealing with this huge influx of patients, but the normal sort of activity of the hospital where we're all sort of working together and and around each other is not the case right now.
1: Celine, you talk about the pages that you're hearing in the hospital about patients going into the ICU. So let's talk about the course of disease. People come into the hospital, obviously they're sick, but once they get there, what's happening? What's the kind of course of disease for the patients in the hospital?
0: I think one thing that's been really striking is how quickly patients decompensate with this disease. They can really turn on a dime. So they can go from needing just a tiny bit of oxygen to needing to be in the ICU just in the course of a couple hours, just in the course of a morning. The other thing that seems to be the case is it's the prior reports in the literature from China have been that around Day seven or eight into disease is when people really crash. And we're seeing it even earlier at day five or six of symptoms that they're emergently needing to be on a ventilator. So it, it can be pretty scary because you see somebody in the morning and you think, oh, they're doing OK, they're stable. And then in a couple hours, they're not so stable. They're critically ill.
1: Early on in the coverage of the disease, there was a focus that only people who had special vulnerabilities, serious pre-existing conditions, or the very elderly could be at risk of serious illness. It sounds like you saw something very different than that in the hospital. What did you learn uh, firsthand?
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. Um... A lot of these patients have never had medical problems in the past. They've never seen a healthcare provider, which is its own issue, that they don't have a primary care provider. But many of them have had next to no contact with the healthcare system before this. And so, it, you know, it's been really striking that people who are pretty healthy are getting gravely ill.
1: Let's talk about the patients that you saw. What were their ages? What were their backgrounds? What was the profile of these patients?
0: Well, they were younger than you might expect. They range from twenty late twenties to late seventies, but the median age was late forties so you know basically my age about two thirds of them were men, and many of them were obese, which has me especially concerned for the u s because about a third of Americans are obese and another third are overweight. The reason that matters is um when you're carrying that extra weight, you're able to expand your lungs less well than if you're a thinner person. And so if you're affected by something like coronavirus, you know, you're going to have a harder time coping with it.
1: So, Celine, the main part of this is treating the patients, of course, but part of this is also dealing with the families of the patients. What did you see in that regard?
0: Well, this is actually one of the reasons the hospital feels so empty right now in some ways is that patients are not allowed visitors for infection control reasons. And so it's really patients by themselves which is incredibly isolating, obviously. I had a patient yesterday who I had talked down from having a panic attack because he was really feeling very isolated in his room by himself without anybody else there. You know, and then we have patients' families who are terrified by the idea of their loved one being discharged home. They are worried that that person may get sicker again, which is not completely unfounded. But we are really trying to make a pretty good assessment as to who's out of the woods and who's not. But at the same time, if somebody does look like they're out of the woods, we do need to free up those hospital beds. You know, you have to kind of weigh that. So those can be some really challenging conversations. And then families are also worried well, okay, so my mom, my dad, my brother uh, is coming home. But what does that mean for me and the rest of my family? Are we at risk for infection? You know, what is this going to mean for the rest of us? And, you know, there's a lot of nervousness about how to handle that in the home.
1: So, Celine, take a step back here. What was the morale in the hospital? What was the mindset of you and your colleagues when you were confronted with this disease uh, up close, face to face?
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely fear. But there's, there's this sort of scarcity mindset um, because there is scarcity in terms of gowns and masks and, and other protective equipment.
1: So Celine, let me interrupt you there for a second. And we've talked about this a couple times, but for our lay listeners, why don't you walk us through head to toe what this protective gear looks like? What should they be wearing to keep themselves safe? What are they actually wearing instead? Just
0: straight up surgical masks are really not Adequate if you're going to be working in a hospital and exposed to this degree to patients' infectious bodily fluids. And so, what the, you really should be wearing um, would include a N95 respirator mask or something equivalent to that. Uh, you should be wearing something covering your face so that if you get sprayed with these aerosols, you're, you're shielded from that. So, that's a plastic face shield or maybe goggles. Uh, you should be wearing something over your hair, like a hairnet or bonnet. You should be wearing a gown, again to cover your clothing and your skin, and you should be wearing gloves. So that's sort of the the outfit. It's not quite as it's not quite the hazmat suit we wore for Ebola, but you know it's not so far away from that.
1: You know, dominating the news is the fact that doctors like you, nurses, other healthcare workers are facing a shortage of masks, protective gears, gowns, gloves, all the things they need to keep them safe. So what were the circumstances, the conditions you had to work under in the hospital on Sunday?
0: Well, we've run out of those N95 respirator masks, which really is what the standard should be um, for caring for these kinds of patients. We are now running out of these surgical masks with face shields, that are probably, you know, as, as good as we have right now, but we're running out of those as well. Uh, and we're also running out of gowns. So, you know, I, I have colleagues who, because they don't want to create this mentality of shortage, um, are actually underprotecting themselves because they don't want to see a run on what few supplies we have left.
1: So what does it feel like to have to go in And treat patients with a deadly disease without the gear you need to keep you and your colleagues safe.
0: Well, it has me really worried. If we get sick, then it means we're going to be even more short-staffed, which means that the risk continues to compound for all of us, whether it's for us as providers being that much more overloaded, whether it's for patients having fewer of us per patient to help them. And it, it honestly doesn't feel fair. It feels like we're really doing what we can, but that others who should be protecting us and arming us with what we need aren't doing their jobs for us.
1: So, you know, Celine, it's a... Really important point. You know, the only time we had someone contract Ebola in the U.S., we treated many people here who we brought back from Africa with the disease, but the only people who actually caught the disease in the U.S. were two nurses in Dallas who were treating an Ebola patient wearing protective gear, but not the right protective gear. Merely having some gear, some kinds of gear, it's not going to cut it. It has to be the right kind of protection for the threat that our doctors, nurses, And medical workers are facing.
0: Well, I think that's a great point. So the CDC recently came out and said, well, if you're out of personal protective equipment, you can wear a bandana or a scarf. And given the level of exposure we have in the hospital, that is entirely inadequate. So I, I really appreciate people who are trying to sew cloth masks for us, but I think that their energies might be better spent elsewhere, whether it's raise money to help us get the personal protective equipment we need, whether it's um, just delivering food to staff working in the hospital, those kinds of things probably will have more of an impact. You know, that there's really no replacement for the correct personal protective equipment.
1: So, Celine, you've obviously been in some very difficult circumstances before. You traded patients with Ebola in West Africa. But what about dealing with COVID patients in New York in the hospital might have surprised you?
0: You know, honestly, Ron, it had less to do with um the patients themselves and more to do with how the doctors were having to make decisions. You know, in, in terms of where I have worked in the past, I never felt like I did not have what I needed to protect myself and, and to to be sure that other healthcare providers were protected and I feel like here doctors are having to make very difficult decisions about with what personal protective equipment we have on hand, how do we prioritize the use of that? How do we ration the use of that? So it's a it's a really strange psychology of on the one hand, well I need to protect myself. I can't be getting sick because then I might transmit to other people and then I can't work. But on the other hand, you don't want to create fear. And and so that juggling act, I've never had to do before.
1: It's a great point. I mean, if you think about it, you were in a developing country, relatively poor country, Guinea in West Africa, and you had the gear you needed there to treat patients with a deadly disease. And now here we are in the richest country in the world, in the nation's largest city, and you lack the equipment you need to safely treat patients. That's a condemning failure of our system, of Washington, to fail to solve the supply chain issues, to get you and your colleagues the kind of gear you need to keep yourselves safe, to keep people in the hospital safe. There's no excuses anymore. The president needs to invoke the Defense Production Act. He needs to take the steps he needs to get this solved tomorrow. No more delays. And so Celine, again, thank you very much for your candid observations about your experience at the hospital. But most of all, thank you and all the other health care workers out there right now today who are taking on this difficult and dangerous work trying to save lives and keep all the rest of us safe. Joining us today on the podcast is a very special guest, one of my favorite authors and thinkers, Adam Grant. He's a professor at Wharton who teaches in organizational psychology. He's the author of four New York Times bestselling books, including Give and Take. He recently wrote an article in The Atlantic called A Trick to Stop Touching Your Face. And so we asked Adam about how we can motivate people to engage in social distancing, to stay away from work and activities. On the one hand, And how we can keep them from doing the things we don't want them to do, on the other hand, like hoarding toilet paper. So here's our conversation with Adam.
0: I'm going to start with um, sort of the stuff that you talked about in your recent piece for The Atlantic, this idea of how do you leverage moral responsibility as a motivator and, and how do you encourage them to be givers and not takers in a crisis like this?
2: Yeah, so one of the things we've we've known in psychology for decades is people generally don't believe that they're at risk when it comes to illness or disease and this will not surprise either of you given your professional experience but there's there's a lot of evidence for the illusion of invulnerability where you know people kind of wander around saying, well, you know, germs they're they're no match for me. And so, you know, one of my big questions for a long time has been how do you overcome that illusion and it turns out that when it comes to estimating the risk to others, we're much more realistic. And, you know, we, we think we might be invulnerable and invincible, but we know that other people are susceptible. I've done some experiments with colleagues where we've shown that people are more likely to wash their hands if you remind them that it could make others sick uh, if, if they don't, as opposed to trying to convince them it could make them sick. I think uh, that's, that's one of the ways to get people to, to take some of the social distance and hand hygiene policies more seriously.
1: So Adam, we always think of crises as hopefully bringing out the best in people, but also it kind of brings out the worst in people too. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about how a pandemic like this brings out things like xenophobia and racism. We're seeing Chinese Americans being targeted in our country for bullying and discrimination. What's the what's the psychology of all that?
2: Oh, interesting question, Ron. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's it's been really obviously disappointing to see in, in many ways. Gosh, there's a whole literature on mortality salience in psychology that says, you know, being aware that we're at risk or, you know, our lives are in danger can lead to one of two responses. And one is exactly one you're describing, which is people experience anxiety. And one of the ways they buffer against anxiety is they double down on their core worldviews. And so they become much more oriented toward defending their in-group, trying to bolster their self-esteem. And sometimes they do that by, by attacking the other, so to speak. I think that's the bad news. The good news is, like you point out, there's also the possibility that if, if we're reacting less from anxiety and more a standpoint of reflection, these kinds of reminders of mortality make us a little bit more generous. They encourage us to expand our moral circle and include you know, outgroups, even you know, animals, um, the environment in our, our conception of you know, who we're responsible for. And so I guess one of the one of the thoughts here very simply is to say look if we want to get people to be less xenophobic, less racist, one of the things we could do is we could try to shift people out of anxiety and toward reflection and ask them okay, you know, not just today, but in the next 3 to 5 years, what would you like to do about, you know, about the problems that we're facing right now? What kind of pandemic response would you like to see available? How can we better prepare for the long run? And it seems like when people shift their time horizon a little bit, they feel a little bit less personally threatened.
1: Interesting. Well, let me ask you about another set of behaviors we're seeing, which is kind of hoarding and buying things up. Anyone who's been to a grocery store in the past week knows that you cannot find toilet paper. We saw a story in the Washington Post about a guy who drove around and bought every bottle of hand sanitizer in a 20 mile radius and are sitting on 17,000 bottles. What is that,
2: 17,000? 17,
1: yeah, 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. So, what advice would you give on how to discourage this kind of uh, bad behavior?
2: The place I would start is to say, too often we focus on on behavior change when we really need to get people to think about identity change. So the the research I'm thinking here, of here is Chris Bryan. Uh, what he studies is uh, how nouns are often more powerful than verbs. This is why you know with with drunk driving, uh, for example. Instead of saying, you know, don't drive drunk, it's often more effective to say, don't be a drunk driver. Because, you know, people will say, look, I can I can drive drunk and I'm still a good person. But if I think about being a drunk driver, well, now that that actually casts a shadow on on the kind of person I am. So yeah, I think don't be a hoarder, don't be a taker. Uh, that kind of message could be pretty powerful. I'm curious, though, you all have, have lived in, in the world of people hoarding supplies and kind of responding to crises a lot longer than I have. What do you think about all this?
0: Yeah, I am really having a really hard time with the hoarding thing myself right now in terms of people around me fessing up to, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I did. And I guess what I am saying to people right now when I hear that is, okay, I understand why you did this, but here's the situation now in the hospitals. And, you know, if there's any way to get those supplies back to the hospitals where they're really needed and, you know, reward them for that. Like, look, I, I forgive you. I understand, you know, that this was your instinct, but, but now we really do need you to to help us out. Um, so I guess that's where I'm at with it.
1: Yeah. One more question is Adam. There's an interesting piece out recently that, um, maybe bad public health communications contributed to this. The more the public health authorities were kind of telling people they were stupid and didn't know what they were doing, might have provoked them into doing more of it.
2: Well, I, I think you've both hit on on themes that that are, are very salient for us in psychology. So, uh, Ron, I'll start with yours, and then Selena, I want to come back to your point, too. Um, I think these public health communications might have had that effect. What What's critical here? is actually to highlight that the base rate of, of hoarding is really low and to say, look, mo- most people recognize that, you know, that it's, it's critical to get the supplies and resources to, you know, the, the health and safety professionals who need them most. And you actually want to highlight how this behavior is rare rather than common. And then when you do call out the behavior, you want to you express a very clear disapproval of it, right, and say, look, this is, this is not okay. Uh, and that's where, you know, people, people seem to <laughs> recover the better angels of their nature. Selena, on your on your point, what I'm thinking of here is a, a Gary Latham study of uh, of people actually stealing from from their employers. Uh, so this is in Canada. It's a, a forklift um, and Forest Service kind of place where people would actually steal heavy machinery. And the company is trying to reduce the employee theft rate. And Gary goes in to find out why they're stealing, and it turns out they're really bored in their jobs. And so the the solution is to kill the thrill. Uh, they announce a policy saying, you know what, anybody can just borrow equipment anytime they want. And the theft rate pretty much drops to zero overnight because it's no longer a game. <laughs> no, they're not competing anymore to, to see who can steal the biggest, heaviest piece of equipment. But they still have a problem that a lot of the equipment is, uh, has already been stolen. And so what they end up doing is they introduce an amnesty policy and say, look, you know what, we know that, you know, you might come across some previously borrowed equipment and on the following day you can bring it in and, you know, nothing will happen. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people brought equipment in saying, you know, I'm tired of of, you know, my spouse wasting space in our garage with this forklift, I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> and so that that makes me think the amnesty day might might have some potential. Adam
1: as different organizations are coping with this in so many different ways should i close down where i'm not required to close down if i close down should i pay my workers what are the hard questions that are coming your way right now
2: you know honestly most of the questions i've been getting are are less dire uh, from an organizational perspective they've been around how do i you know how do i manage remote work how do i keep my team engaged and you know make sure that that people don't start to feel isolated and and lonely i think where where i probably have gotten um maybe maybe where I've been less unhelpful has just been around basic questions of you know of, of how do I help people manage the panic and fear? We know that you can basically either reframe or refocus, and both of those two things help. Uh, so you know you you could reframe, for example, your uh, you know your time away from the office as, as giving you extra family time or flex time. Uh, you can you know try to refocus on other priorities that you have like, you know, getting getting in shape or uh, learning a new skill that you might have extra time for. It's helpful to to take a step back from your emotions and say, "Okay, I'm feeling anxiety. What am I actually feeling anxiety about? Am I worried that we're not going to have enough food? Am I worried that I'm you know I might be exposed? Am I concerned that you know I'm going to end up really isolated?" And as you start to name what you're feeling, you can begin to pinpoint the causes and actually do something about it, as opposed to just kind of wallowing in the in the uncertainty.
0: So last question for you, Adam. Um, you know, I think one thing that is especially challenging is where you have political polarization, where you have um, mistrust in government that really makes controlling an epidemic, or in this case a pandemic, that much more challenging. And I think one of the problems is people believe on the basis of their political identity and whether they think the messenger shares the same political identity. So, I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but if you do, you know, how should that reframe how we approach this?
2: Yeah, Selena, I I think it's hard not to agree with that, sadly. I I think, you know, so much of, of communication is filtered through the lens of, well, what's this person's agenda? I think the you know the the good news on that is there are some cross cutting values. So you know we know we know for example from work on um, trying to communicate about climate change across the aisle uh, that one value that's that's shared by conservatives and liberals is freedom. You know what? Wherever you stand politically, one of the reasons that we all need to make sure that you know we we stay out of social contact as much as possible that, you know, we, we go out of our way to, you know, to wash very carefully is, you know, we want to maintain freedom. We want to, we want to stay a free community, a free country. And we can't do that if, you know, if half of our community or half of our country gets sick. So I, I just, I'd probably say there, there are some fundamental values that uh, they can reach people regardless of their political ideology. And I think, I think freedom is the most compelling one. Uh, there may be others. Uh, any, any others that either of you have, have noticed? Well, I mean, you know, one
1: that I'll talk about a little bit is faith. During the Ebola uh, outbreak, one of the most controversial decisions I made was a decision to authorize the use of U.S. military equipment to fly radically anti-American imams around different parts of the three countries of West Africa to allow them to tell their followers to engage in safer burial practices. Wow. And no matter how much we tried to message this safer burial practice message through public health communications, through kind of traditional mainstream communications, people weren't doing it. But these imams could reach their faith communities, and we made a decision, even though these imams were not friends of the United States, that the best way to save lives was to deploy these people throughout these countries. And it made a real difference on changing people's burial practices. Questions of faith and other kinds of belief systems are important here, and uh, political ideology is just one step away from that in many cases, and we have to kind of get to people where they are.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I actually met two of those imams in, in Guinea and spent some time talking to them about this. There's a lot in religion that actually relates to infectious diseases. Um, and so they're able to draw on those religious texts and reframe these issues in a way that sort of transcends politics. And so I thought that was really powerful.
2: I love that. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's, it speaks to the fact that it's so hard to convince people to change their values. It's much easier to appeal to values they already hold. And it's probably easiest to do that if the message is coming from someone who they believe already shares their values.
1: Well, Adam, thank you very, very much for doing this. We appreciate having you on the podcast. We're very grateful for your incredible insights as always.
2: I just want to say I really appreciate the work that both of you do and uh, glad to be here. Thanks, Adam.
0: Thanks, Adam.
1: So at the start of the program, you heard from Celine describing the harrowing experience of being on the front lines right now. And if you're like me, you're a layperson. You hear these stories of heroism, and hard work. You wonder what can we be doing to help those people, to support those people. So, Celine, what are your thoughts on that?
0: When I came home from Bellevue last night, my husband told me that some of our neighbors had donated a couple packs of N95 respirator masks. I also got an email from Alan Gold who seen me on CNN talking about the shortage of N95 masks. He FedExed me a box of 20. And then he and his daughter, Danielle, decided they should do more. After watching Governor Cuomo and Dr. Gounder on CNN this past week, my dad, his staff, and I have taken up the cause to help locate personal protective equipment in the United States. There are so many industries that use these masks and other equipment, they just need to be notified of the urgent need. We are in the process of calling, emailing, and posting on social media in the oil, gas, mining, chemical, and automotive industries. If you would like to help, it's as simple as calling your local car dealership or local auto repair center and asking them for any extra masks and sending them as fast as possible to your nearest hospital. Given the number of medical staff that have already died in Italy, this is truly a race for time to help our own doctors, nurses, and first responders. This is one way we can all contribute to the health and safety of our medical heroes from our own homes. Thank you.
1: So, Celine, we want to be clear. We're not urging people, certainly, to go out and buy these masks. We should let the supply chain do its work. We're not asking people to privately procure them. And we're also saying if you have these supplies, don't just show up at the front door of the hospital with boxes of them. That's only going to add to confusion and distraction. If you have supplies that you think can be helpful... You should go online and figure out where the donation facility is in your community. So please do that the right way. Please do that in an orderly way.
0: You know, and Ron, it's not just about masks. David Pizarro, who's the chef at Porcina, a restaurant here in the East Village in New York City, delivered dinner to all of us working on the medicine service at Bellevue. And at the end of a 13-hour shift, I can tell you that really meant a lot to us. I can't tell you how much these shows of support, whether they're big or small, have meant so much to me and my colleagues. You know, seeing people come out in solidarity and and doing what they can to help, it really does have an impact.
1: You know, Celine, those are great suggestions. And I'll say one last thing. Even if you can't do any of the things we've talked about, there's something all of us can do. People online have suggested that every day at 8 p.m. local time, we go to our front doors, we open them up. We give a round of applause for the healthcare workers who are going off to help save lives and putting themselves at risk, often doing so. So if you can't, I don't have supplies to donate, you can't donate meals. The thing all of us can do is take a moment each day to recognize and thank the people who are at the front lines doing this work. We can all do that.
0: Epidemic is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our music is by The Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to support the podcast at epidemic.fm. That's epidemic.fm. Just Human Productions is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your donations to support our podcasts are tax deductible. Go to epidemic.fm to make a donation. Starting today, we'll be releasing Epidemic twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, but producing a podcast costs money. We've got to pay Zach. So please make a donation to help us keep this going. Also, check out our sister podcast, American Diagnosis. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or at americandiagnosis.fm. On American Diagnosis, we cover some of the biggest public health challenges affecting the nation today. In Season 1, we covered youth and mental health. In Season 2, the opioid overdose crisis. And in Season 3, gun violence in America. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder.
1: And I'm Ron Klein.
0: Thanks for listening to Epidemic.